Thursday, December 10th, 2020, you are listening to the Inquisitor Bro Podcast. On today's episode, Steve is here, Karn is here. These guys are going to take us deep into the business world of sports cards. To break down just how serious these two are about their roles in the industry, you can check out Karn's Insta page, The Big Three Hockey. Yeah, Big Three Hockey. And Steve, real quick, can you tell us a little bit, real quick, what did you bring for us to open on air today? We brought a Upper Deck Series 1, 2020-2021, looking for Lafreniere Young Guns hobby box. And what could be the value of that Lafreniere card? If you get a base Lafreniere, um, probably get one in every five or six packs that runs about 300 bucks. And uh, anything beyond that, you can look for exclusives, you can look for high gloss, you can look for, they have French variants this year. All the, the more rare it is, the more it adds to it. Crazy. Hopefully we hit big on the pod, that would be fun. Maybe Steve can retire. Could you retire? No, not off this. You can't retire off $300? I don't think so. Well, that just seems like you're just not being frugal enough. We've got cards being insured. We have cards being kept in vaults. I assure you what you're about to hear about this industry is going to blow your mind. I've already heard some pretty crazy things. Let's get right into it. I'm Andrew. He's Chris. Let's go. All right, so we're talking about sports cards. And before we talk about the market and everything, let me just start off with a story between me and Karn. So I was on the Bleacher Report app, and I saw the story about a McDavid rookie card going for $77,000 so far the winning bid, I think US. I give a shout out to my buddy Karn and saying like, yo, have you seen this? Because I know he's into cards. He responds with, and I shit you not, yeah, I'm leading the bid right now. Karn, did you end up getting that card? No, I didn't. The, the card actually went for 135 US, uh, 135,000 US dollars. So uh, was 77 like the top bid that you ended yeah, up? Yeah, at that point, I, I and I, then he cut it. Yeah, I bid until like 100, and then uh, after that, I decided to tap out a little bit. But uh, yeah, sold for 135,000 dollars for this McDavid rookie card. Yeah, that's chump change. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. Okay, so we'll just like dump in, jump into it right now. The cards industry, for those who don't know, is absolutely exploding right now. There's a lot of different auction houses, but the most common one being eBay. Last year, eBay reported that over $600 million was spent on cards alone. Going back to this, guys, my question to you, Karn, first is, what made this McDavid card so valuable compared to just your run-of-the-mill card? Like $130,000. Yeah, it's just uh, it's just one of those things where it's considered more of an art piece than actually a piece of cardboard, right? And uh, what made this McDavid card specifically a lot better is because it was from that most expensive uh, brand of sports cards, uh, which is called Upper Deck the Cup. So having only 99 copies, the demand of the card is just significant. There's a lot more than 99 people looking after this card. But what makes this card a little more special is the serial number of the card is 97 out of 99. Oh, okay. Yeah, in the sports card world, there's a lot of nuances like that that uh, add value to the cards. And uh, the 97.99 is more valuable because the serial number matches McDavid's jersey number. And... Uh, there can only be one that has McDavid's jersey number as a serial number. So people actually consider this as a one of one. So one can only be made. And uh, that's kind of why it went for that uh, large sum. So then, a, uh, for example, like Sidney Crosby, uh, serial number 87 would be the one of one for that. Yeah, that right? would be a huge card. Like I would expect that card to go for over $200,000. 
Wow. And this is not, for the listeners out there, this is not an uncommon number to be sold on cards. Just last year, after uh, Giannis Atatakumpo won his second MVP, a one-of-one card sold for $1.812 million. Prior to that, you have Mike Trout. Baseball cards are big, especially in the cards world. Mike Trout sold for $3.9 million, I think, beating yeah, there. Hornus Wagner's uh, previous, uh, previous record. So... Crazy money is being thrown around in this industry, and we're going to try to get to the bottom of, like, why this is the case and, like, how do these hold value, I guess. But before we do this, let's just kind of get into the differences between Karn, what you do, and Steve, kind of like your trading habits, because it's a little bit of the uh, different side of the same coin. Why don't we start with you, Steve? How do you trade, and what is kind of where you go about this business? I still enjoy opening the packs themselves. Generally, you're not going to get as much value out of it, but uh, it's fun. So I definitely do enjoy some of the fun behind it. Um, at the same time, like it, it still costs money, so you, you don't want to bleed yourself too dry. So you do have to understand the other half of the market and decide what you want to keep, what you want to flip, what you want to get graded, and uh, what you want to hang on to. What is like, uh, generally, what are the type of prices that you do that when you're flipping things, how much do you sell it for? Uh, it'll vary. I'm usually probably on average in about the $100 range. I'll, I'll collect some rookie cards of some uh, like decent guys, uh, Carter Hart, for example, stuff like that, uh, Thatcher Demko. The Generally, the bigger stuff, I've got a Connor McDavid, Young Guns, uh, 9.5 graded. I'm probably just going to sit on that. I think it's worth about 900 right now. But all the other stuff that I, I found with the, with hockey cards, it's the big guys that will carry. And the little guys, It's if they have a bad season, they will tank. And the value of the cards will tank. And so at that point, if they're decent, just get rid of them. Right, fair enough. So you didn't, like, you're more of a hobbyist then, you'd say, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and Karn, now you have a business called The Big Three Hockey, and so you're much more on the big fish side of things, which I think you guys provide a good juxtaposition of this market being the hobbyist versus the big money that's being put into this. So Karn, I'll put it to you then. What are the types of sales that you usually do when you're flipping cards? Like, what type of prices are you usually working with? Yeah, so we, we work with a wide range in the market, so from $100 cards to some of the biggest cards in the whole market, uh, including the pieces like uh, the McDavid we talked about earlier. But what we try to be is kind of the broker in the sports card industry. So we, we buy uh, cards for $100 from uh, people like Steve, and uh, then we find other collectors that would pay more for that card based on demand, supply, and we invest in certain cards. We speculate on certain prospects, and we also buy mid-range cards, which which are tend, tend to be about $1,000 plus or $5,000 plus. And we kind of broker transactions and invest for the long term as well. Right, so you look for Steve's and try to rip them off and then make more profit off of them. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, rip off is the wrong word, but uh, for people like Steve, sometimes the number one question you get is, all right, I have these cards, but where do I sell them, right? And that's probably the most difficult part. And you, it's kind of like uh, with, with buying stocks or buying shares in a company, you don't necessarily know where to get these things, uh, the average person. So you need to go to a, a TD stockbroker to, to figure out how to get your shares, right? It's the same thing with cards. A lot of people don't know where to sell their cards and even how to buy cards. So I, I am the middleman there to help people like Steve get money for their cards, and then we hold it to find someone else that will buy it from us. Spoken like a true businessman. I'm the middleman here. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Let me ask you this. It sounds like you uh, will purchase the cards and resell them, but let's say I wanted to get into the card game and I had, let's say, 100 grand, 
am I able to tell you that and then you'll source the cards for me? Yeah, so a lot of times uh, people do come to me and ask me, all right, uh, like for example, two weeks ago, there's an owner of a brown social house. Um, he literally came to me and he said, all right, I have about $50,000 to spend. What should I target as an investment? So when we're speaking investment, we're looking for the blue chip items. We're looking for something that someone can put their money into and hold on to and it can accumulate uh, its value over the five years or 10 years. So what I told him to do is to buy a LeBron James Topps Chrome rookie, which is one of his highest regarded rookie cards. And the reason I picked that card is because of the brand of LeBron James, who he is, what his performance level is like, and that equals the demand for his cards, right? If a player plays well, his brand is huge and he's winning championships, more people generally just want his cards. And since there's a finite number of supply of those cards, the prices go up. What are we talking about as far as numbers? That specific card, do we know how many are in the market? Yeah, so that specific card, what he got is something called a Beckett 10 LeBron James Topps Chrome card. So for that particular card that he purchased from me, it was actually brokered by me, um, there's only 11 in the world. Oh, wow. So that's what creates that value of $50,000. Gotcha, And gotcha. you just said a buzzword there that we should uh, fill in the listeners. You said Beckett 10. So what is Beckett and there's some other companies like this as well? So these companies are called grading companies, but uh, I find a lot of uh, a lot of the times I speak to someone new, they always tend to call it a rating rating company, and uh, that's what they are. They're more of a company that rates the cards on on the conditional scale of it, one to ten. So if a card is beautiful, centered, it's cut properly, um, the color of it is bright, and how it's meant to be out of a pack of cards, it would get a ten. If there's corner problems, if there's dents in it, indents, scratches, the, the conditional value drops from there. How much of like a slight imperfection affects the rate? How perfect does it have to be to be a 10? Yeah, so there's two rating companies. One is called PSA. Um, that's probably the leading company right now. And the second one is called Beckett. So they both have two separate standards of things. But uh, generally, a slight imperfection, especially an imperfection to what a, a regular person coming into cards would see on the card, that will, what would significantly drop the, the conditional rating on a card. Okay, so let me ask you this. So Steve, as we mentioned in the intro, has a box of new cards. How many cards are in that box? In total? Yeah. Uh, 24 packs, 8 cards a pack, so just like what, 190 something or other. Okay, so that's a lot of cards. They're fresh out of the box. Uh, would it safe to say that 99% of those are going to be perfect 10s as far as condition? Because you are buying brand new cards. Would you expect them to all be 10s? No, because the grading will not just be how clean it is. First off, you can get a pack that's got a nick in it, and you pull the card right out, and there will be edge damage. There will be corner damage. Uh, centering is a really big thing on grading, and that is straight from the cut off of the manufacturer. And you can get a card, and if it's a little to the left, a little to the right, that will really drop your grade. So you could have, you could take it clean from the pack, put it right into a sleeve, perfect corners, everything like that. But if your centering is bad, you're not going to get a 10. So you're saying that it doesn't necessarily matter how well you take care of it. Like you could literally put on rubber gloves, take it out with tweezers and everything. And it would still be, I don't know, less than 10, like a six or something or much worse, right? Absolutely. Generally with, I noticed with hockey cards, like if you, if you take care of it, you're not going to get as low as a six, but the value, the value between a nine and a ten. If you're on Beckett, a nine and a, and a ten is, is huge. Even PSA, it's it makes a really big difference. Did we explain what PSA was? I mean, Karn kind of explained it, but uh, PSA is just another company like Beckett. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. got you. Professional sports authenticators. Correct. Right. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Did my right, research. 
Yeah, you did your research. <laughs> you listened to him 30 seconds ago. That too, but I also yeah. did research. My question is then uh, for you, Karn, is we're talking about these uh, highly rated cards and everything. Do you have some of these Becca 10s and PSA 10s? Yeah, so I just, uh, the one that we were talking about earlier, I actually brokered the, the Beckett 10 LeBron James um, to someone. So uh, those cards are a lot rarer to find. So um, at, going back on Steve's point, um, the industry average on what a card would grade out of a pack is usually a, between an 8 and a 9. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's not, okay. So an 8 and a 9 is kind of like what you are uh, what the companies think that you're gonna get. So if you actually get less than that, though, you can send it in, and they might um, give you the same card back, uh, like another version of that card, like another <laughs> copy. So that's kind of the industry average. But once you hit like a PSA ten or a Beckett ten, that's when your card goes up in value because the condition is kind of rare in the sense of there's not many coming out of the pack that have that grade. What is the most valuable card that you have on hand right now? Well, the card that I showed you, the Patrick Mahomes uh, RPA, which is a rookie patch auto, so a card that actually has the autograph of Patrick Mahomes, so he's actually held the card, signed it, and that has a lot of value to it, and actually has a patch uh, of his jersey that he's worn in an NFL game embedded into the card. So that's uh, probably one of the most valuable I have on Do they say what game he wore it on? Like if it's against like That'd the Jaguars, be, cool, right? be like, yeah. ah, fuck, the Jaguars. Yeah, that I lost that game <laughs> or something like that. So yeah, I've actually spoken to these card companies on why out of a pack do cards come on Cendric, for example. And the answer that I've been given is uh, they're making thousands and thousands of these cards and the printing press actually misaligns halfway through or down the process. So they actually have to manually put it back together type of thing and that's what causes like some cards to be uncentered and not perfectly placed on actual cardboard stock like the picture is not perfectly placed and that causes rating issues so right okay so then switching gears then from the cards themselves to the market um and i guess i'll pose this to you steve first why is the market so big these days i i read something where the cards market in the last two to three years specifically has really exploded and also long-term past 10 years it has grown in value to put into context pwcc which is um one of the top auction houses in sports cards they have a market index and it shows that since 2008 the return on investment of top graded cards has outperformed the s&p 500 by roughly 2.5 times so i mean they're just cards at least to me they're just cards when you look at it from an outsider perspective why are these things holding so much value why are people investing in these uh, well, there'd be a little bit of difference, I guess, in comparison to the 90s. One thing that's changed is a lot of the stuff you're getting in the 90s was so ridiculously mass-produced at the time. Like, you could grab you can grab a box of 91 hockey card and get whoever was a rookie in there, and there's, like, I don't know what the number is, but there's hundreds of thousands of, of some of these specific cards kicking around. That was called the junk wax era, right? Correct. So in the last, probably between five and ten years, too, you have had... Um, and Karn will probably know more on this, but the majority of the manufacturers, they have all exclusively signed to a specific sport. Um, so back in the day, OPG tops would still make hockey cards. We talked about Wayne Gretzky. That's an OPG um, rookie card there. OPG, um, they, they were kind of connected with tops. Now tops just does baseball. OPG still exists, but Upper Deck is producing them for hockey. So Upper Deck does the entirety of hockey. Tops does your baseball. So everyone is kind of off onto their own brand there. Um, and, uh, I think the market died down a little bit in the late nineties and, uh, I guess production slowed down and now you're not having things as mass produced. So is that the reason for the comeback in the market is simply just a scarcity of cards? Yeah, I would say a scarcity of cards, but there's also the aspect of 
things like DraftKings. There's a lot more uh, fantasy sports guys out there that watch their players to make money, right? They they put in they gamble on their players and their their performance and success. So there's a whole a slew of people coming in. They're buying rookie cards of the players that they enjoy so that they can sell it later for a higher price based on their performance. So that's a new segment of the market that's coming in. And globalization of things has increased uh, how many eyeballs are on this market as well, right? In the 90s, you literally had to get like a book to assess your values. You don't really ship cards either, so you had to go to local card shops and card shows and meet people face-to-face to make deals. But now you got things like Facebook, Instagram, eBay, which makes it infinitely easier to buy and sell look at your values in real time and it just creates that aura and aspect of an actual investment class coming into the and coming into the space and on top of that there's actual collectors of these items so not is there only gamblers there's actual collectors that look at the rare cards that are scarce because the manufacturers are actually creating that scarcity and uh, they're looking at that as art pieces. Like these cards are pieces of art. There's only 10 in the world in some cases, 100 in the, in the world in some cases, and that drives up value, right? And then there's another angle to the market, which is speculators and investors that buy cards for the long term. And then there's just so many different, different angles, and it's creating that value. To, to kind of touch on how uh, big this market is getting and how somewhat mainstream it is becoming, off-pod, you mentioned that you were actually showing a prospectus deal to where institutions are putting together funds simply to raise investor money to uh, wager and collect sports cards. That, to me, sounds insane. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's crazy for, for us to have been in sports cards for a while. Like I've been like into it pretty legit for about six, seven years. From where it started and where it is now, it's it's quite unbelievable. You always felt like sports cards could catch on fire because just how cool it is, how fun it is. You're actually opening packs to get these players, so there's this fun aspect of a random chance of you getting a big card or not. And that's a huge gambling portion to it. And I think that has helped it catch on, and as it's gone to the mainstream, institutional investors are starting to see that this is a very legit investment class and now they're pumping in pumping in money to buy these pieces that are very rare and there's only a, a select number made and produced right force cards are not the only cards of value steve you used to be a big collector of pokemon cards is that market similar to the sports card market as far as um not only perceived value but uh is it as popular is it as uh big as the sports card market i think it depends like basketball right now is killing it but if you were comparing pokemon cards to hockey cards like there's there's no competition pokemon cards are crushing it it's it's a little different in the way so you talk about what drives the value for the cards it shows better with pokemon cards is that like i collected them when i was like what your uncle was buying me pokemon cards when i was eight years old right i think we all collected pokemon cards everyone did but i just tossed them out right and i never paid for like 150 bucks for a holographic charizard i'm like nah that's a waste of money so (laughs) many kids just didn't toss it out that's the thing (laughs) most most people did but there's so many that haven't i was telling this story to a buddy of mine i remember this clearly i was probably in like grade i was probably like grade three so what's that make me eight years old and we're playing red ass. You guys remember red ass? Yeah. yeah, yeah we're playing classic, red ass on the back wall game. of school. And one of our buddy's younger brother, I think it was, this guy's got to be in senior kindergarten. I, to this day, I'll never forget this. He comes up, pulls out a crumpled first edition Charizard in his pocket. This thing is mangled. 
This thing's completely mangled. So I'm laughing now. I'm like, I wonder, this kid was like four or five. You, you, gotta, you remember those memories. He's probably sitting there somewhere being like, I had a quarter of a million dollars in my pocket. <laughs> yeah, what is a first-generation Charizard worth now? In PSA 10 grade, <clears throat> 300000 U.S. dollars. 300000 U.S. dollars. And do we know how many of those cards were, <laughs> pre- like, were those mass-produced cards at the time? If you got a first edition that had the stamp on them, they were mass produced, but I wouldn't. I don't remember the exact production run on them. Yeah, they they were, they weren't mass produced, but they were produced pretty heavily. So the first edition set, I don't know how deep we want to get into it. But hey, man, cool, man. This is a this is a deep dive. This inquisitor bro. So the we're first uh, first edition set actually got released in the West Coast uh, near the Vancouver Seattle area. Um, so it was the first print run, and it got released only in that West Coast closest area. Closest from, close to Japan, I guess, right? Yeah, I guess. And um, what actually happened is they only produced a certain number with the first edition stamp on it. And then after that, they actually changed to what is called an unlimited print, which doesn't have the first edition stamp, and that is mass-produced. to the. So everyone in this room that had a Charizard most likely had the unlimited version when they were growing up. But uh, even the unlimited version in PSA 10 is uh, 15 grand. So if you, but the thing is to have that card crisp since 1999 to now is incredibly rare. I think there's only 300 in the world. Yeah, I think the big thing with Pokemon cards is that like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but at the time they were probably being collected more by kids than they were adult card collectors so most of us who had these cards we didn't know the value of them and yeah we probably did stuff them in our pockets or throw them in our backpack like we had no idea what we were actually holding yeah we used to play with like we used to do card battles all the time you're dropping your card you're throwing it on the floor and everything like that right um absolutely but to go back to what you were saying before the interesting thing with card values of pokemon cards as the thing that makes it different from sports cards is um you could be holding a mitch marner rpa rookie card um What's that worth? Like fifteen hundred bucks? Nothing, yeah, nothing there. crazy. Just wait till he wins the cup with the least. But uh, <laughs> that'd be great. Thirty k, thirty k. If he starts tanking, the value of his card starts tanking. Right. And okay. That's across the board. Whereas Pokemon cards, the thing that might make them carry a lot longer is like Charizard's not not having a bad game. What if you Charizard know? becomes an alcoholic? Really goes off the deep end. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The Does phrase the... is actually Charizard can't tear his ACL. There's t-shirts. There's t-shirts about it. <laughs> I wanted to jump on that point that Steve just made about uh, the market fluctuating. How reactive is the cards market to the, going back to sports that is, to the day in day out uh, performances of these players? Say Zion Williamson, because I know his his cards with Luca and Ja Morant are like the top right now young gun yeah. type basketball cards. If Zion drops 50, does his market skyrocket somewhat? And then if the next day he goes and like drops well, five the, points does it go down like is that how reactive it is not maybe not from a day-to-day perspective but it already did during the covid season so my brother he was trying to grab i don't remember what the set it was but he was looking for a psa uh nine it was a zion card it was going for about 920 on ebay he was like it's three in the morning he's like screw this i'm going to bed that same card right so that's pre-covid season right. that same card right now is about 25 grand that he was going after so just over and like how long is the basketball covid season we're talking just three a few months. months right yeah, and that is twenty times the value. So, basketball is a basketball seems to be a lot more uh, yeah. volatile. I don't know if that's the right word, but yeah. Zion Williamson shows up thirty pounds overweight first game. No, Does it drop down to <laughs> seriously? I'm not even kidding. Uh, that uh, remember that picture that got released of Zion before the bubble, where right. he looks all jacked. Yeah, mm-hmm. it literally 
caused mayhem in the sports card market where people actually right. started buying up Zion cards because they thought he lost weight and he was going to perform a lot better. Yeah, exactly. then he showed up on screen and he basically looked the same L- way. He looked fatter. Yeah. <laughs> let me yeah. Ask yeah. You, hold up. Real quick, because we're talking about Zion, let me ask you guys this. Uh, this is for any athlete. Say there's a big uh, athlete who has a big rookie season, highly touted. What happens if year two career-ending injury? Is that card now worth more simply because of the story around this athlete, how he was supposed to be great, and then never panned out, or is it just no, like no, no, tank. no, no, everyone tank. tries oh, to sell. Okay. Yeah, yeah. What are Brandon Roy cards going for these days? Not, not great. <laughs> Don't know. What about D Rose? D Rose, not great. Not great. There's still some potential there, so people still pick it up here and there, but it's very, very low. Like it's not an expensive card. But uh, going back on the original point, um, NBA cards have the highest volume, and they're, they're the most liquid. So they're the most reactive because of that. Because there's they're always being traded on eBay and traded on Facebook groups and Instagram every single day, multiple times. So you actually see that reactive pricing because of that. Now, hockey cards, it's not as big of a market. And due to that, it's not as reactive mm. because just the liquidity and the volume of it all is different than basketball. So each sport has their own different sub-market inside of it. It's kind of interesting to think about it when like, that each sport has its own sub-market. It might also, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems that these markets might also take kind of the perspectives or the personalities of those sports themselves. You think about like hockey, very conservative, yeah, uh, very, true, very, uh, very button-down uh, players. And then you got basketball who are more brash, player movement, card movement. I also like read something reading up on this pod uh, about the basketball cards it's um, an extension from the sneakerheads who have yeah, moved into That's card flipping. That's the of the market, man. Like I was talking about earlier, the investors, speculators, DraftKings guys, and the sneakerheads. A lot of sneakerheads that own shops in L.A. that are just flipping and reselling shoes their whole life, like the last 10 years. They're getting into sports cards now, flipping the sports cards, buying them for 100 bucks in bulk, like 50 of them, and then selling them for 125 150 and that's kind of what they're doing now, and that's another segment of the market that's joined sports cards. What, what about soccer? Because I know that one's pretty big too. Right? Yeah, I invested hard in soccer uh, about six, seven months ago, and it just blew blew up. Like, it blew up like crazy. So a box of soccer cards would cost, say, on average 60 bucks last year. Now they're about $800, $900. So if you stashed away a bunch of soccer box, boxes, you're doing, you're doing well. Okay, I want to get on one more topic before we open the first pack that Steve brought, and that is we've been talking about the market and that there exist these big cards. I kind of want to get into the process of start to finish how a card becomes expensive because everyone can see that, like, okay, this card is expensive. How did it get there? We have, like, the starting point right here, this box. Is it literally simply you open it up, you see a card, you put it to the rating agency. If it's well-liked, then suddenly you're off to the races? Like, how does that work? So... Your your big guys, they're always going to carry. Your Sidney Crosby's, your Ovechkin's, your McDavid's. Like, for me, if you're holding something like that, I don't think it's ever going to drop in value unless you have something crazy like a career-ending injury like we talked about. Right. But generally, that stuff is going to carry. Um, aside from that, all the other stuff is uh, there's different tiers of the boxes that you can get. So this here, this is your standard kind of middle-of-the-range beginner box here. Um, the only thing pretty much lower-end in this is Upper Deck MVP, which you can get a box for like 60 70 bucks. You're not really going to get anything in there. Right. If you want to go for the big fish, uh, then you can go start buying some Black Diamond or some Upper Deck the Cup. And those are going to be 
it's a tin inside of another tin inside of a box. They package it really well. They give you the, you get the feel of it. You're not just opening up a, a, a bit of a pack there. And you get six cards. I think the boxes usually start off at about $700. But like if you want to buy a, a tin of the cup of 15, 16 and shoot for that McDavid RPA that sold for 135 grand, um, like what are those going for? Like five, $6,000 for six, you get one pack, six cards. That's it. And no, no guarantee on that. Right. Well, the well, the upper deck cup like fuck you, like where you pay yeah, seven hundred bucks, and then someone's like, like God damn it, a Timothy oh, Lilligren. Like. Yeah. <laughs> so my brother bought a black diamond. Uh, he bought a black diamond fifteen sixteen, trying to grab a McDavid something, and th- those ones they're more. You're more particular what you get. You're gonna get an RPA of someone. You're going to get another autograph card. You're gonna get something. What is an RPA? A rookie patch auto. So it's got your your autograph on there. It's got a jersey patch, and it's the rookie year. So generally those carry a lot of value if they're from the higher end sets. So you're going to get something like that. Um, my brother paid six something for that box and he got Jacob Delarose. And I'm sure Dean doesn't box. even know who Delarose is. Man, it doesn't sound like Crosby to me. <laughs> so like, yeah. And like, but if that was a McDavid of the exact same card, like you're looking at. So you're literally paying bucks. 700 bucks to basically gamble that you might actually hit big. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Interesting. So then you're just, uh, it's, those very exclusive boxes, if you find the right card, then you're off to the races. Whereas this one, if we find a Lafreniere, which might be in there, it's never going to reach that high level. Yeah, you're getting a lot. Yeah, this, like, these boxes here, you get different different aspects of it. You're not going to get anything too crazy. You're going to get all the base cards if you like to collect all the base cards and finish your, your whole set in your binder or whatever the case be. But minimal risk, and you don't have, uh, obviously, as much reward. I okay. want to add a little interesting tidbit, too. So the McDavid year... Uh, of the cup, so it's six thousand, seven thousand dollars for one ten, six cards. Because it's so expensive, a lot of people actually treat the box, the actual plastic sleeve around the box, in a new form to now be an artifact in in the card world. So people actually buy and trade the box now without ever opening it. So now you create even more manufactured scarcity because no one actually wants to open those packs anymore because the risk is so high. You don't want you don't want to open up a six thousand dollar tin and get that Jacob Della Rose that's worth thirty bucks. So people stop opening these boxes and keep them, and that actually results in less McDavid Cup RPAs being huh. out on the market. So now there's not actually ninety nine out there. There's only seventy, and there's only maybe there's only sixty. So that actually drives the uh, price up on singles, and singles is actually buying the cards outright right. so that's what a lot of people do they don't actually open the packs and gamble what they do is buy the cards that they want outright on right. ebay or instagram and that's what they but you're saying with these purchase. these um the cut box boxes like say i buy the box from you for like a grand i'm not going to open it i just want to see if i can find someone who's going to buy it for 1.5 grand is basically what's happening yes, and so on because um because the actual card the main chase of that box is going up in value so it goes from 50, say that McDavid goes for $50,000 and it goes to $75,000 in the next year. Now that box is now more valuable too because the hit you can get out of it is worth more. And so you know that, the year and everything. Exactly. Everyone loves a mystery box. Everyone it's like, loves the mystery box. It's like that, it's like that, uh, family, that guy. family guy thing. It's like, it's like wait, like, Lois, a boat is just a boat. The box can be anything. It can even be a boat. <laughs> you know how much we bought one of those? <laughs> People love surprises, man. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of surprises, why don't we open this box and uh, see what we got? We'll be back right after this. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Inquisitive Bro Podcast. We know you listen to us, but more importantly, we want to hear from you. Did you disagree with one of our takes? Did you catch a mistake that we made? 
Do you have your own take about something we discussed that maybe we didn't consider or fail to mention? If that's the case, we want to hear from you. Hit us up on Instagram at the Inquisitive Bro. Or if you want to just reach out and say what up, that's cool too. If you make a good point, bring us an interesting take of your own, or you get us talking about something cool you brought to the table, you just may hear us giving you a shout out and discussing your take on our next podcast. All right, well, we're not done yet. As always, thanks for listening. Now, back to the pod. Okay, we're back. We just uh, opened up a shit ton of cards, and apparently most of them are junk. Steve, tell me what we got here. Considering what we opened, we did fairly decent, but this box is, goes for about 170 bucks. We got a, a Foundations uh, Carolina clear, clear-cut clear card that's probably 15 20 bucks. We did get an auto of Yanni Gourde, another 15 bucks. And we got a few rookies, not no Lafreniere, no indecent. We got Nick Robertson, because um, he's on the Leafs. You're getting about 25 for that. So then Leafs, in hockey, like the Leafs market really carries. It, it'll carry on these lower-end guys, for sure. Like this. Whoa, it, whoa, 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 whoa. Lower-end? <laughs> if you got a Nick future, Robertson equivalent. Future Hall of Famer, Nick Robertson. Did you see that goal he scored in the playoffs? <laughs> that was a nice goal. <laughs> if you get a Nick Robertson equivalent on any other team, it's like, it's a toonie at best, right? That's it. So... When we opened this up, we had, like, some really good players. I mean, like, I found, like, a Jonathan Taze, like, a Timmy Pernarin, and, like, Karn's like, yeah, I'd throw those out. They're garbage. But yet, like, a Yanni Gord, I mean, I guess his autograph, but, like, some of these other ones are just random dudes. So, I've barely yeah, heard of them. There's, like, two parts to these types of boxes. You have your, your main base set. There's 200 cards um, in Series 1, another 200 cards in Series 2, so you get 400 players around the league, not including your rookies. And you try and like a lot of guys like to collect. I'm one of them. I like to have, make sure I have all 200 cards because I put them in a little binder. And if there's a sleeve that doesn't have one card, it eats me up inside. You know. Right. So outside of that, though, once you get your 200, they're they're utterly useless. You can sell 150 of them, and you might get like you can't sell 150 of them. No one's paying five dollars on eBay for it or anything right. like that. So they're they're just useless. So you're going for the inserts. In these cases, there's one insert per pack, and you, you just got to hope you hit pretty decent insert in the 24 packs right and we did not hit the lafreniere nor did we hit the french lafreniere no we did not that would have been nice okay but while we were off pod we got started talking about like different rookie cards and a really interesting story came up about basketball related jeremy lynn so karn why don't you uh, take it away with this little story here yeah everyone remembers uh lynn sanity great time raptors uh championship winner too so i, I love that guy you know yeah. and uh yeah, during that 20, what was it, 2007? No, no, it was no, like no, 2012. Really. 2012, yeah, yeah. yeah, 2012. During that uh, time of Linsanity, when, when he was pushing those 30-point heaters game by game, uh, Jeremy Lin's card skyrocketed in price, and they went from about $100 to 27000 in some cases. And my business partner actually sold uh, one of the most expensive Jeremy Lin cards during Linsanity. And um, CBS News did a whole article on him. They actually called him into the business seg- segment of their show. Are you serious? And he was legit, like, just sitting there. Your buddy is just, like, here, like, I have this card. You can actually YouTube it. It's funny. He's just sitting there just like, yeah, this is Jeremy Lin, like, phenomenal player. And he probably knew Jeremy Lin was going to be crap. But uh, that little three-week span just created mayhem in the market, just like how it did in in the world about him in sports, right? It created and, mayhem for his market as well, and the Houston Rockets threw money at him. Exactly. <laughs> that, that offseason. All these collectors from, from North America to Asia especially, they wanted Jeremy Lin cards, and they but, thought he was going to be a huge player. But hold up. Does this mean that I can hold a bunch of cards, wait for a guy to have a hot two weeks, and then flip it? Yeah, that oh, happens. Bull, yeah, bull. Yeah. 
and uh, Bull Bull's cards were about $2 for a Prism Rookie. And uh, he had that one good practice game where everyone was like, In the Bull bubble. Bull, in the bubble. Yeah. Yeah. And people were like, oh shit, Bull Bull has some skills. His cards went from $2 to $50 because of a practice game in the bubble. That's crazy. And uh, a lot of people flipped. A lot of people were calling everyone idiots for buying at $50. And now they've gone down to probably like 20 20 is a lot higher than $2, though, so it, mm. it created a new floor for Bull Bull. And there's people that still think he's going to be sick for the new year, and he might win Rookie of the Year, too, because uh, he's eligible for it still. Of course he's sick. His name's Bull Bull. Bull Bull, man, and people are investing in Bull Bull. So you're saying, yeah, so you're saying to the listeners out there, buy up some Bull Bull cards, because if he has baby. his own little Bull Sanity... <laughs> That is <laughs> just flows out working, your tongue. Working, working title. <laughs> if he's bowling out there, nice. then... Is that one better? <laughs> I think so, yeah. yeah. I think so. <laughs> then uh, you might be able to sell it for he's 27... Bowling. Yeah, bowling. bowling this cup upcoming season. I'm down to bowl. Hey guys, hope you're enjoying the pod so far. You know, here at the Inquisitive Bro, we're always thinking about ways to enhance your listening experience. And that's why I'm very excited to tell you about a new podcast add-on we're doing called Podnotes. Now, you may be wondering, well, what are Podnotes and where can I find them? Well, basically, during the podcast, you may hear us from time to time make references to videos, images, charts, or graphs that we can't visually share with you because, well, you're listening to us. This is where Podnotes come in. All the visual references that we make during the podcasts are going to be bundled into a single Instagram post that you can find on our Instagram page, at the Inquisitive Bro. So look out for this pod's pod notes and the pod notes for future pods to come. Now, back to the pod. Let's switch gears then, and we're gonna go with more of a long-term view. So one I wanna ask you, and I'll start with you, Steve, is, so obviously we see this market, it's huge, and it seems to be growing. Where do you see the card market going? Is this a bubble that is going to burst, or is this just going to continue to kind of move forward and uh, be, like, say, in 20 years from now, if you buy a card now, like, legitimate investment pieces, what do you think? I'm actually entirely on the fence about it. I think something that drove the market a lot was COVID. You've got everyone at home. They're not able to go out and do things, and people are getting back into hobbies. And it, it's right. very evident since March how much of a difference it's made. So I'd be interested to see what happens when people are allowed to travel again. and all their Because right now, everyone's got a, a ton of expendable income. You've got families of four who no longer are taking their, their trips to Europe that are costing them fifteen twenty thousand dollars $20,000. What are they doing with it? They're spending it on maybe it's cards. sports cards, maybe it's other stuff, right? <laughs> so you do have a Excuse lot more... Yeah, you do have a lot more expendable income hey kids, in the market. kids, I know we were going to go to Barbados, <laughs> exactly. but Daddy's going to buy some cards this year. Exactly. Sorry, Timmy can't feed you today. <laughs> okay, well, I'm buying so stocks. Steve doesn't hold uh, <laughs> as much value in cards on a typical, uh, any given day. Karin, you hold uh, cards in excess of you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars at any given time. Are you concerned at any given year the market drops off? And people go, you know what? I don't really think I care about cards anymore. And that just falls aside. The short answer is no. The longer answer is I shit my pants a lot. Okay, good. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was thinking it was going to be one of those two answers. Those sure, are, those are pre- both pretty short answers. but <laughs> Both equally as decisive, though. I think with the big cards, like, yeah, I mean, card will know much better than me. But even, like, on my big stuff, like, which is, you know, a $1,000 card, it's nothing crazy. I don't think the value is ever going to really drop off on that. I don't think a McDavid rookie card graded 9.5 is ever really going to fall off off of the map. But anything 
anything that may not have a, a large volume, like it, in terms of hockey, there's five, ten players, and those guys will keep their value. Everything else after that, we were kind of talking previously about Mitch Marner and what the perceived value of his cards card could be. If the Leafs trade Mitch Marner to any other team in the league, he could be like a still a decent team like the Habs or the Rangers. Like that card's going down. They're never trading him to the Habs. No, absolutely, but. The value of that card's going down, and I don't see it recovering. Even if he does, like, say he gets traded to the Rangers, he wins a cup in the Rangers, obviously it's not going to happen. But, like, it won't be the same as if he was on the Leafs or if, like, so there is a lot of, anything outside of, like, the top ten guys, especially with, with hockey, I've noticed this at least, is a lot more volatile. You don't know what you get out of it. Right. Um, I don't know how it would translate in other sports. I know basketball's maybe a little yeah, bit more. Yeah, so, so going back to my answer, no, because players like LeBron James, they're cultural icons. They're pop culture icons. Those guys will always be in demand no matter what, and there just is a finite number of cards available. But then on the flip side, owning cards that are worth 50000 of players that, look, someone like Patrick Mahomes, he's won a Super Bowl. He won, he won an MVP, but he has $100,000 cards. Now, if you buy a $100,000 card of Patrick Mahomes, you are basing that on his performance in the future and football is a harsh sport he can literally be injured for the rest of his career next game next week and the card prices are going to are going to tank so you you're shitting your pants holding the card a lot but um the card market as a whole i'm a little bullish on it because i do agree with you that covid did um help accelerate things but since i started in about 2015 2016 you saw an organic and real rise uh, of large uh, cards, like a $300,000 card sold two years ago, a modern card that was released in the 90s, sold for $300,000. That only happens if there's a, a foundational base of people willing to spend that money. So I kind of sigh growing um, from its infancy to where it is now. And from just understanding the market and seeing the amount of players that are coming into the market and investing in it. Like uh, last week, Kevin Durant actually invested $2 million into a company that does sports cards, uh, a sports card platform. Uh, Matthew Deladova invested. Kendrick Perkins follows me on Instagram for cards. Like he asked me for fucking cards. Like Kendrick Perkins. Like what the hell? And uh, like Weird flex, people. but okay. Yeah, Steve I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like Kendrick Perkins. Like carry pretty, on. Pretty carry weak on. name drop there, card. <laughs> Kendrick Perkins, Steve Ioki, um, Logan Paul, who's fighting Floyd Mayweather. I talked to on Instagram about cards. Right. And like it's like these players are coming in that have uh, millions and millions of dollars and they're interested in these hobbies. And look, once you get into sports cards, it's the main thing. Steve, I think you can understand this. Once you get into it, it becomes a thing. Like yeah, you absolutely. like it, you love it. Right. Like it's something that's very fun. It's addictive and uh, it's something you spend time on and you feel like it's worthwhile. Right. And it gives you like this little happiness in your, in your days. One thing I want to jump in on is that Patrick Mahomes card. I don't think we actually said on the pod what it's worth. You want to just, like, drop it really quick? Yeah, so the Patrick Mahomes National Treasures Rookie Patch Auto from 2017 out of 99. It's worth uh, about $100,000 Canadian. Right. We'll toss it up on the Instagram so people can see what it looks like. Um, if he wins another Super Bowl this year, what's That's that That's the hope, man. In three weeks, uh, if, if everything goes according to plan, I would hope to actually sell it within the next uh, either 
right before the Super Bowl because that's when pent-up demand happens and people speculate on, oh, Patrick Mahomes might win another Super Bowl. Can we sell it mid-game? He's up at halftime. <laughs> sell, sell, sell. Yeah, I feel like you totally could, man. Like the way yeah, you're describing yeah. it, it's a hedge, right? Yeah. You yeah. could sell it for 80% of the Super Bowl win value probably like right before the game, or you can wait for the extra 20% sell it after the win, but you risk them losing the game, and then who knows what he's going to get. So there's, there's Hail Mary for the win. It's halfway in the air. Sell it. <laughs> <laughs> there's patterns that you... This is where experience comes into play. So I know for a fact that this is exactly what happens. So right before a major player uh, is going to win a major award, um, a lot of people are speculating on that person winning the, that trophy, right? And that's when demand rises and the card prices go up. But then when they win the championship supply hits the market because everyone's like all right i bought this card and now patrick mahomes has won the championship the cards are going to go up in price and they start posting on ebay and hundreds and hundreds of them flood on on the marketplace and the prices actually go down so it's actually a good time to buy when someone actually wins the super bowl but it's a good time to sell right before he might win the super bowl okay. but if they do win the following season now it, it becomes like an accomplishment oh patrick mahomes has two super bowls Two finals MVPs. Now that is the time where it's going to start going up in price higher than it ever was before. Right. So Interesting. It's very cyclical in that sense. One thing I want to say about like just my interpretation about like the market and stuff, and obviously like this is just me doing like some research and like I'm new to this. But one thing about like where you think about bubbles is the idea that like when they burst, because the bubbles themselves have like no intrinsic value. The the first uh, you think back, one term that's thrown around is tulip mania, yeah, tulip which mania. harkens back up to uh, the 1637 tulip bubble in Netherlands. Known as the first economic bubble ever to happen, basically the price of tulip bulbs, which were new to Europe. Tulips aren't LeBron James, though. Have <laughs> you seen tulip thing. throw down a dunk? Yeah. yeah. No, well, that's the thing. Mm. Who's collecting a tulip, right? And then the problem with that whole theory, I get it, the economic. Uh, you didn't let me finish principle. my point. Okay, go for it. I was saying that it's not like that. <laughs> I, said I know a lot of people say the tulip. No, no, no. Make. Well, no, that's like the idea. But I'm saying it's not like that. I love, how, I love how Chris invites Karn on the pot and then just trashes his industry. <laughs> that is some tulip bubble. I'm not. <laughs> no. Did you guys carry on? Carry I will go on. back. I literally said why it's not like this is because unlike tulips, like these things have nostalgic value that you can't yeah. take away. These guys didn't like these players. Uh, were in your lives and they bring you memories that like make people open their wallets. Like. No matter what happens with like the cards and everything, one th- one thing like the manufacturers aren't going to happen. Go back to what happened in the '90s with the junk wax era. Like they know how to do manufactured uh, scarcity, um, but you'll always have the memories of these players doing things. What LeBron James has done, he's he's done it. Like that's not going to go away. People are going to value that. Just like man, like I have this card. Look at like LeBron James. Like this is what he did, and it just goes from there. The scarcity like um, escalates basically. So I think it's there to stay. You see like a long term thing. Um, like since 2008, like like I said, that stat about the S and P 500, like it's just going up. So I don't see it necessarily bursting. So hold up, you showed us uh, Karn, you showed us a Patrick Mahomes card, you all showed us a LeBron James rookie card. Let me ask you this: Say you weren't in the uh, selling game and you were planning on just holding the LeBron James card for you know maybe generations or whatever. Is there any concern that LeBron James is somewhat of a and this is a terrible example, but he's R. Kelly, Bill Cosby, and you're holding this card for years and years, and it's millions of dollars, and all of a sudden you find out this kid was, he was doing something kind of sketchy like 30 years ago. Yeah, so on that point, um, something happened during this whole time frame, uh, during the bubble. Uh, People were unhappy that uh, LeBron James was a political voice. 
So that divided a lot of LeBron James collectors. And that actually resulted in a drop in his price. And people never expected LeBron James to drop in price, right? Like, that's kind of something that LeBron James usually is a good investment item, right? But now he spoke out politically and his beliefs, and people don't like that. His price went down. Now they've corrected back. But now if he did something like uh, R. Kelly did, yeah. you, you, might, you might not recover from that, right? right? Me on this LeBron James situation, on the political belief situation, I thought he's a modern-day Muhammad Ali almost. I think that's going to help him down the line. Uh, side yeah. note, like, that's right. definitely where he kind of like sees himself as. Right? But I mean, obviously Muhammad Ali, I don't think there was cars back then, but like his sto- Ali's stock would have dipped around the war time, exactly. similar to what happened, and then he became a cultural icon. So, I mean, I, I, this is LeBron's clearly not Ali, but yeah, you're totally right. You know, 10, 15 years from now, they can look back and say he took a stand and his values Dude, increased. I think what LeBron James is doing is huge, and in 10 years, we're going to look back on it and be like, wow, like, what he's done is pretty big. Like, Black Lives Matter was a huge deal. There's so many things about him that uh, create a stir, and he's always going to be so popular because of that. But yeah, uh, going you're perfecting, back to... You're perfecting your pitch when you eventually sell the card. Exactly. Remember when he did that? That was really <laughs> monumental, so it's going to be a little bit more pricey, this one. Yeah, but <laughs> prices can definitely drop. If... What does uh, what does death do to cards? Uh, so, death, uh, when Kobe died... Um, Obviously, a lot of people were angry that they called him death merchants. So with Kobe, um, it was unbelievable what happened. Like, you had half the market pissed off that people were selling it, but uh, the people pissed off were actually just buying it too. So it's kind of like, how dare you fucking sell Kobe's, but then they're on eBay buying Kobe's. (laughs) That's kind of what happened because the prices tripled the day he died. And since then, they have... And this is why you have no more Kobe stuff, right? <laughs> oh, those people, hey, man. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> no comment. I was on buying and talking shit. But, uh, but yeah, um, rest in peace, Kobe, obviously. But uh, like that whole situation was... Coming up to a year. Yeah, it's crazy. Wow. And uh, aside from just card uh, talk, like people were very um, connected with Kobe prior to his death, right? And his prices were kind of just always that undervalued. Like, why is Kobe so undervalued in comparison to LeBron? But once once he passed away, everyone that had that nostalgic feeling and that feeling of Kobe and what he meant to them, uh, meant to them in, in their lives, that resulted in them buying his collectibles and that created that demand and his prices have not dropped. Being the same as it, they were prior. It's not a unique phenomenon. I think you, you think about the rock star who dies and suddenly his albums do a lot better. Well, um, yeah. I mean, that's that's a business in its own is discography. People going out and buying the music. Absolutely. Of, yeah. I had a I had a vinyl of the Cranberries, and I gave it away to my friend's brother because it was just taking up space on the shelf. And when she died, it like went from thirty dollars to like four hundred bucks. It happens across the board. You also have a vinyl of the Space Jam. Uh, I do. Much <laughs> to Andrew's chagrin. Uh, <laughs> my chagrin was voice. We did Space Jam pod last night, actually, and you wow. made the pod. Wow. Yeah. Let's switch gears to the the final topic I want to talk about is just uh, Steve and Karn. You guys, what are for people who are trying to enter into this market, which can people be People pretty... like Chris. Hey, I'm kind of interested, <laughs> but we're trying to give the people that are listening some information, some knowledge. So for people trying to enter this market, which can be kind of daunting when you see all these different cards, all these different prices, prices being thrown around, what are some tips that you would give them to kind of like get into the market uh, safely, or maybe not so safely, but ideas to like actually like make some money and do it properly? Yeah, so one thing I suggest both of you do, because honestly, it's such a great market. It's fun, it's exciting, you can make money, and 
you watch your players play that you own cards of and it just enhances your sports experience like 100%. But the number one thing I would ask someone uh, entering the market, first of all, is why do you want to buy cards? Do you want to invest in them? Do you want to collect your player? Uh, do you want to flip and make money? Uh, and that's the first thing I, I would ask. And then they give me that answer. And based on that, I would give them different advice. But the, the, the number one tip is always... Um, whatever genre of sport that you want to enter uh, and buy cards for, always find out that uh, flagship item that is uh, some, something everyone is in demand for. It's really easy to find. Like, go on Google. Like, what is the flagship hockey card brand? What is the flagship basketball brand? And you'll get that, and it's very it's very clear in most sports. And, for example, in hockey, it's what we opened today, Upper Deck Series 1. And what you would do is buy your favorite rookie from that product. And that's kind of what you would want to stick with. With basketball, it's Panini Prism. And so you'd buy Prism rookies. And that's the easiest thing. And you focus on that one thing until you learn the more intricate uh, Where aspects. does one go to buy these cards? It's called a store. Yeah, so then you, you want to make that uh, assessment if you want to gamble and open up boxes. I would advise people to do it once just so you know the feeling and how it is but uh most of the time if you want to collect or invest in a player you want to go for the singles which is just buying the cards itself and um that's kind of uh what i would say go to ebay find that player and buy it right what about you steve uh yeah i mean it's depending on what what your end goal is for me like i've opened boxes upon boxes upon boxes and i I still open them like we open this box i said beforehand unless we get a lafreniere we're not getting 170 dollars of value out of it and that's obvious so it's what it's what you want to do um ultimately like it is a process uh for me you know i started you start off you're in walmart you're buying groceries and then you walk by the toy aisle and then you see you know you see a blaster box of yeah tim horns don't even talk about yeah what are tim horns cards uh, Tim Hortons cards, some of them are decent, but uh, like th- that's two bucks a pack. It's fun. You can just screw around. You get it with your coffee or whatever. Okay, yeah, but you're not like there's, there's no Tim Hortons card there's going. Thousand dollar cards and Tim Hortons oh, cards. Yeah. What? Yeah, man. I almost have the whole base set. I'm two cards short of the of the full set, and the binder now is about six hundred bucks on day one. If you had the binder, you could flip it for twelve hundred bucks. Next year, Tim Hortons. Not even joking. I'm gonna put a listing on eBay right away of the master set and I'm just going to go buy like 15 cases of them and just come open them all day because it sells for it and then yeah most of it is the rare uh, rookie cards yeah. like uh, anyone that has a McDavid Tim Hortons card uh, messaged me on the big three hockey <laughs> but uh, <laughs> in 2016 and Tom- Tim Hortons packs in like one in 5,000 packs you could hit a McDavid rookie card and anyone that hit that card it's about like a $2,000 card now and that's from a $2 pack any Anyone might have it because randomly people just buy packs of Tim Hortons hockey cards. Not in, like they're just like fuck it, I'll buy it. it comes with a coffee with one dollar. Someone out there might have a two thousand dollar card and not know it, right? So yeah, the Lafreniere Redemption in Tim Hortons this year is worth more than the card in yeah. this hundred and seventy dollar box. It goes for like four hundred bucks. We spoke about it real quick in the intro. We didn't get a chance to touch on it, so I'm gonna fall back real quick right now. Um, the legitimacy of the industry and what you do. You talking about insuring cards? You're talking about putting them in vaults. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, yeah, quickly. um, So when you're dealing with high-end cards, uh, high-end is usually considered like above $10,000. Those are the investable cards that most people on the market are looking to to invest in a card. And who you're selling it to is an end user. And there is a lot of end users. That's the foundation. Actual collectors that are 
often very rich and just like art they're collecting cards and uh, there's a lot of rare items and those rare items you don't want to keep them at home so the PWCC the auction house that we spoke of prior they actually have a vault service so they actually have a legitimate armed guarded security vault system in Portland Oregon where you actually ship out the cards to and they create a digital portfolio of your cards with the insured value and it shows your real-time value of all the cards in your portfolio and you just pay for that service and they and if you do sell it they actually um, fulfill all the logistics to shipping it and they even find buyers for you sometimes sell your cards as well so it's very legit in that aspect and it's still a young in innovation so PWCC and the vault situation was probably one of the biggest in innovations in the in the industry for a long time but now you're seeing a lot more companies come in and finding new ways to innovate and it's becoming um, more legit by the day and that's why I'm very bullish about it because there's a lot of investment uh, companies coming in and dropping hundreds of millions of dollars in the, in the industry so I think it's still in the second inning and it's um, gonna grow that's crazy. All right. This was fun, very informative, um, unreal. Might get into the game myself. I know Chris has been looking into it. Bowl, bowl, boys. Let's do it. I'm be bowling out here. Bowling. It was fun. Thanks, boys. Yeah, thanks, guys. And thank you, listeners. If you're interested in any of the cards that we were talking about today, I would highly recommend that you go on Instagram and check out the Big Three Hockey. That's Karn's Instagram page. It's filled with great stuff. And also, if you like Steve and want to see more of Steve, I would recommend that you check out his YouTube page, which is TMLS Hockey Blog. It's really funny. I would highly recommend it. Have a good one, guys.